Good evening to you. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 4 this evening. Actually, we'll make it chapter 5. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, on the Sunday nights we try to cover a little bit of territory in the Bible, and it's always great to have a Bible to see with your own eyes. And so men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them, get their attention, and they will happily get one into your hands. I want to remind you, in case uh, you haven't heard, Harvest Party is tomorrow night, 6 p.m. to 8.30 p.m., and uh, going to be a great night for the kids and the adults. And by the way, that last Sunday, the announcements related to the needs, we had 66. I'm so glad it wasn't 666. That would have been so hard to announce. But 66 needs, and they were met that day and beyond, and so... Thank you so much for stepping up. We we'll look forward to what the Lord's going to do tomorrow night. We remember that chapters 4 through 6 contain a series of devices that God's uh, people faced, Nehemiah and the Jewish people faced, and, and uh, brought against them by their enemies who were opposing uh, their attempts to accomplish God's will for their lives, which at this point in time constituted the rebuilding of a physical wall in the city of Jerusalem. And as we mentioned last week, but it's w- certainly worth repeating uh, this week just to get us all on the same page. Those Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he spoke about the fact, uh, spoke to them and spoke to us as Christians, lest we be ignorant of Satan's devices, his wiles, his methods that he uses against us. And uh, certainly Corinth was largely ignorant of how the devil was attacking that church specifically. Sometimes we can be very ignorant of the devices, and it's only later that we realize, oh, that was, that was an attempt by the devil to overthrow me in my service to the Lord or to undermine the work that I was doing for the Lord, to attack me in some kind of way. But it's always nice to know what his devices are that he's the most prone to use so that when we encounter them, we recognize them immediately. And I don't think that Nehemiah chapters 4 through 6 is necessarily the premier passage in the Bible in terms of an expose of spiritual warfare and all of the things that have to do with Satan and standing in the midst of all of that. Ephesians probably is, is that place in the New Testament. But I think these four chapters, or these three chapters, are the very best in all of the Bible for speaking to us about how the devil attacks us in our service to the Lord, in what God has called us to do, and all of the different means or schemes or devices that he uses in an attempt to pull us away from fulfilling what God has called us to do as his uh, people. And we saw last week uh, the use of mocking by the enemies of the children of Israel, ridicule to try and get them to stop their building, also the threat of force or physical violence against them. And then here in chapter 5, uh, we come to something a little bit different. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. So after having given you all that great introduction, you might not have thought it was great. It was certainly very adequate uh, introduction to the chapters we're looking at. 
Here we go. I go into chapter five and I have to kind of uh, make a condition on it because in chapter five, the work of the Lord almost gets derailed in a very serious way. But the devil doesn't have anything to do with it. The opposers of the children of Israel is not an Ammonite or an Arab, so to speak, and is spoken of in the passage or Sanballat. Nobody comes against them. Uh, They almost derail God's work on the basis of a inner conflict, Christian against Christian. There is a, a problem that has been brewing among the Jewish people that surfaces in the middle of their Christian service. When the devil, uh, if the devil ever catches us, uh, or a church or a group of Christians or united to accomplish some work for God that we believe God has called us to, and he comes by and he's going to attempt to hinder that work at all, and he comes by and he catches us already fighting with one another, he goes and gets a perm or whatever the devil does. I don't know, gets a manicure, pedicure or something. He, or goes to Starbucks and gets some coffee or something. But he, he clears out. There, when God's people are fighting against one another, that's, that is one of the scariest things. For You think about how much of God's work has been brought to a halt and even destroyed. By Christians fighting against one another. So it's a very common thing. He's used to seeing it. So he shows up and he says, all right, I'm going to attack Calvary Chapel, Modesto or wherever. And he sees we're already at war with one another. He just clears out and goes someplace else. He is a finite being. He can only be one place at a time. His demons can only be one place at a time. And so he says, listen, I'm not going to allocate any resources to messing them up. They're messing themselves up all on, on their own. One of the things that happens, and here at this point in the rebuilding of the wall, the wall's halfway built at this point. So they're well on their way. They're making great progress. They've spent considerable time getting to this place. But one of the things that happens is when we serve together, and we serve together in the body of Christ, because there's no lone rangers, uh, it, it is... The body of Christ is likened to a body. So we are doing what we are doing in a larger context of other Christians. And there's something about serving the Lord together that if there is some great carnality in our hearts or there is some great unresolved division among us, that the pull and the effort and the warfare associated, the opposition associated with spiritual warfare, it will ultimately out that. And, and that situation that is unresolved should have been resolved in a different way now is going to come to the forefront under the strain, so to speak, of doing God's work. And the demands of it is a better way to put it. And, and then now it needs to be dealt with. And that's exactly what happens here. So we've got something where we've got a division among the Jewish brethren themselves. And here's the problem that they were facing. For there were those who said to Nehemiah, we are sons and our daughters are many. So big families. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. And so a lot of them were living right on the edge of things. They were uh, what we would call today in our country what is called the working poor, where they're working all two jobs, three jobs, as many hours as they can get, and still it is enough to put enough food on the table to keep the family fed. And so it was a, there was this kind of a strain that was going on. 
And there, the situation had become so great that there were some who said, we have mortgaged our lands, our vineyards, and our houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. So there's a famine in the land, and then here they come to a place where, honey, do you have any money? Do you have anything hidden away? I don't have it. How are we going to do? What? It, well, looks like we're going to have to uh, sell the farm. Looks like we're going to have to sell the house. We're going to have to mortgage it in order to keep food on the table because it's not a matter of having anything anymore. We're down to the place where we're wondering whether we're going to have enough to eat to live in, in this through this situation. And there were also those who said we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. So taxes in those days, like taxes are taxes. Uh, death and taxes, they say, the two sure things in life. But in those days, you didn't just uh, ignore the taxes of Persia. You had to pay those taxes. So they, had to, they were selling all of this property and all their land, their vineyards and all, to come up with the money to pay the taxes to Persia, who was ruling uh, the land of Israel uh, at, at, at that time. So we're talking about circumstances here where no matter... Uh, what they did, again, working poor, no matter how hard they worked, how hard they tried, there just wasn't a way to keep their heads above water. We got a little, a little bit of a taste of that in our country right now, don't we? And so no matter what they, what they did, no matter what they tried, they were falling further and further behind. And, and then in the middle of this situation, they said, get and now our flesh, our, our children that come from our bodies, is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. So here's the deal that was happening. Food became so scarce, survival became so, so difficult. Not only was the farm gone, not only was the vineyard and the property gone, long gone. Not only was the house gone, long gone. But now they were selling their children into slavery for enough money to try and keep, them, keep the family alive and then to sell the child into slavery so if they're sold into the right household, they'll have enough to eat to survive the time. The problem is, is that the wealthy Jews, the powerful Jews in this situation, they were taking advantage of the situation. They were taking advantage of their fellow Jews who were in this very, very vulnerable con condition. People here, you imagine that being forcing to choose between your children or starvation. I mean, we have to put ourselves in that place and say, all right, let me try and imagine what that's like. Parts of the world, they don't have to try to imagine. But that's the situation that they found uh, themselves in. And the idea that they're thinking about is here, all right, we're building this wall. We've got it up to half uh, of its height. So what good is building a wall and reestablishing Jerusalem for God's people if I don't have my children if Jerusalem is just going to be like every place else in the world where the powerless pray, uh, the powerful pray on the powerless. What am I killing myself to build a wall for? 
for the, the powerless to do to, this, uh, us, to us in a further measure, to take our children, buy them, use them as their own slaves, and even sell them to other people as slaves. And so this was a violation, not only of conscience and human decency, but it was a violation of the heart of God. It was a violation of his law. Money could be loaned out to a fellow child of God, according to the law of Moses, but you are not to gain interest under any circumstances, much less take advantage of someone who was in distress. And so God had set up this law and his, his God's heart, as you read the Bible, is so big toward the poor. And, and when, you, when you read about the poor in the Bible, you, you, people slip into, we can slip into poverty in a lot of different ways. There can be health issues, there can be a turn of circumstances that we have no control over. A lot of things can put any one of us in, in that kind of a place. And so God had a heart toward the poor. And so he says, I'm going to bless you as a people in the land. It's a land of milk and honey. You are going to prosper as a group. And, but I'm going to set up laws in terms of the transfer of land and even the buying of slaves and that kind of thing in such a way that every six years all of this transfers back to the original owner because I don't want a concentration of wealth and power into 5% of the population. And then everybody else for the rest of the history of the nation of Israel is penniless and at their mercy. So God has a great heart toward the powerless. He has a great heart toward uh, the poor. And so he set up these laws to remind the children of Israel that, hey, when you came out of Egypt, you were all like that person you're trying to take advantage of right now. None of you had anything. I gave you this land. I gave you homes you didn't build, cities you didn't build, vineyards that you didn't build, cisterns that you didn't uh, hew out. All of it is a gift to you. And to remind them of the fact that everything that they had came from God and that God had been gracious to them in giving it to them so their attitude would also be soft toward the poor and certainly toward uh, their brethren. And, and so the, when they were doing all of this, they were in violation of God's word and they were not uh, representing uh, God in any way in terms of what his word uh, had to say in, in his attitude toward the poor. And you notice Nehemiah's reaction to all of this. I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. This really, really angered him. And the anger that he has here is a righteous anger. One of the greatest ways you say, well, what's a righteous anger? What's an unrighteous anger? Well, there's a lot of tests you can put your, we could put our anger to to determine between one or the other. The greatest test, the first test to put it to, is that a righteous anger, it, it typically, and we see it in Nehemiah here, there's no self involved. I, 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 at the drop of a hat, I can get angry at, at an unjust uh, injustice that is meted out against me. Nothing righteous about that. But when I become angry, righteously angry, when I become angry, it's on its way at least to being likelihood of it being righteous. When I see something being done that is wrong to somebody else and then that angers me, 
that a child of God would do that to another child of God or whatever the situation might be. And so this was a, a righteous anger uh, that he had. Again, God's concern for the poor, well represented in the Old Testament. And, uh, and Nehemiah looked at this. He recognized the, the distance between what they were doing and what God's standard was. And then he said, after serious thought, I re- I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury. You're, you're gouging. Uh, usury in, in the Old Testament, when you were like um, uh, giving a loan and then uh, charging interest for it, uh, any 12 percent annual was that was usury. That was gouging the people. In those days, they didn't have like a Federal Reserve Whatever that is and however good or bad that is, uh, you can ask the presidential candidates related to that. But but things were kind of, you know, they weren't as volatile as this modern world that we're in. So to charge somebody 12 percent interest a year, virtually no one could keep their head above water at that kind of an interest rate. And so this is the kind of thing that that they're doing uh, doing here. What they're taking advantage of each of you is exacting as he speaks to these nobles and rulers usury from his brother. And so I called a great assembly against them. Now, those first three words of verse seven are very, very good. Uh, After serious thought, Uh, he didn't react or respond verbally or physically until he had given serious thought to what it is that he had just heard and what he had heard incensed him. He didn't fly off the handle. He said, after serious thought, then he began to address the situation. The word serious in the Hebrew means rain, and the word thought there uh, uh, means heart. And so the idea is, after he brought his heart or his emotions under control, he then proceeded to address uh, the situation. And so even though his anger is a righteous anger, he doesn't want to be driven even by that righteous anger and what what he might do in terms of an immediate action or something. But he took some time to make sure that his decisions and uh, that he was making that to handle this didn't come out uh, of just pure emotion, but came out of very serious thought. And so he, he issues this very sobering kind of rebuke toward the nobles and toward the rulers, and he confronted them with their sin. This is a beautiful thing about Nehemiah. And I think it's a beautiful thing about any leader of God's people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, any effective one, and certainly should be true of any one of us as Christians. He's not a respecter of persons. These are the noblemen. These are the rulers. These are the power brokers. These are the guys that can create a lot of problems for Nehemiah. Nehemiah, you've got enough enemies out there already in the form of the people that surround us on the east and the west and the north and the south. You don't need to make trouble with God's people here. This is the way that it is. These are the the people that head up these clans and these families. And if you get on the wrong side of them, in addition to be on the wrong side of the unsaved world, you're not going to get that wall finished at all. It doesn't even enter into his thinking. Right is right and wrong is wrong. And these are God's people. And because they are God's people, there's a higher standard that they are to live up to. And so he takes and he and it looks like just something that you're going through. You have no idea what he's risking by doing this. Jesus warns in the New Testament speaks about 
the tendency for, you know, somebody that's rich and powerful to come into a congregation and give them the front row and, uh, you know, put a little stool under their feet and, and make a big to-do about them. And he says, don't do that. He says, I, he, he likes everybody, he loves everybody, but, but the person that comes in and rags and is poor just as much an object of God's love and God's concern as anybody else. So there's not to be the respect of persons. I don't think... Any leader will ever be, whatever our, our position in the body of Christ will ever be effective if we have a, 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 even a, a remote hint of respect of persons. Where people get the idea, that guy will say thing in, things in one environment, but he won't say the same thing in another environment. That's a, that's a salesman. This guy's a, a snake charmer or something. He, he's working this whole thing. And Nehemiah wasn't that kind of a guy. Was right was right, wrong was wrong. God's word said what it, what it said, and and that was what needed to be spoken into the situation. And so he confronted them with their sin and accused them of exacting usury from their brethren. And uh, he called for a public handling uh, of the issue here, and, and, and gathers this. Uh, so he called. It tells us at the end of verse seven this great assembly against them. So. It was it was such a dominant issue that was known to all of God's people, just the hypocrisy and disobedience of it, that he said, we've got to deal with this publicly uh, because it's a mess and everybody needs to see that this is going to get resolved. And the situation was so big and involved so many people that needed to be handled in a large uh, public place. And so that's why a great assembly was called against them. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. And now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? And so Nehemiah looks. Apparently, Nehemiah came into the land and with his people and those that were kind of had a kindred spirit with what God had called him to do. And they they saw Jewish people being sold into slavery. He wasn't aware of this kind of a situation. They used their own money to buy them back out of slavery. And so Nehemiah basically gets them in the in the face in their face a little bit in a sanctified way, and he says, "Do you think God kept these people alive? You think He kept the Jewish people alive in Babylonian captivity for seventy years to bring them back to the city of Jerusalem and reestablish them in the land?" So you could make slaves of them and sell them to other people? Is that what you think the big picture is here? Is that how spiritual you are about what God is doing around here? That your money and your greed is completely overwhelming what God is attempting to do with the nation of Israel? The people through whom he's going to bring not only the Holy Scriptures into the world, but bring the Messiah into the world? So he really lets them have it. And... I don't know if you've ever had anybody really let you have it. I have that a time or two. I'm always glad when the Lord does that privately, though. And, uh, you know, again, as the old saying goes, when you've been put down, sit down. And so they're getting, they're getting it, but they deserve it. There needs to be clarity here. And then they were silenced and they found nothing uh, to say. So 
Uh, they were silenced not because they didn't want to say something in their own defense, but because they couldn't think of anything. I mean, there's just no uh, justification at all for their actions. And so here are all these dealings in secret that they're doing, and they're thinking, all right, this is never going to see the light of day. And yet these secret dealings, when they were brought out into the light, they did not look so good as they did in the dark. And that's a good thing for us to think about tonight. In our actions, in our dealings, in our business, in our contact with the rest of the body of Christ, could what we're doing be brought out fully into the public and look as clean as we think it looks uh, in, in private? And so this was the confrontation that was made uh, with them. And then, uh, and then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God? That was the reason they were doing what they were doing. Yes, it was greed and all of that covetousness, all that kind of stuff. But behind that, you elevate all greed and sin and all above obedience to God's word. There's an absence of the fear of God in our lives. And so that's what he confronts them with. Should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies. So he's telling these people, what you're doing here is you're giving our enemies an opportunity to mock our faith. Because when they look at what you're doing in the business realm here, or whatever realm we want to put in in our life, Nehemiah lets them know the world is watching, the unsaved world is watching. And the conclusion that they're coming to about Judaism and a relationship with the God of the Bible is that it's not uh, it's not unlike anything else in the world. And that when push comes to shove, money wins, power wins. You do whatever you want. And so he says you're ruining not only your name, but our name and God's name. And the reputation in terms of what you're doing. You're making it look like this is a religion of every man for himself. And, of course, we know that the religion of the God of the Bible is just the exact opposite of that. And so Nehemiah here does this strong confronting. And I also, with my brethren and with my servants, am lending them money and grain. That's how you do it according to the word of God when people are poor and in this place. Please let us stop this usury. And then he goes on not only to stop what had gone on, he calls on them to restore. He said, restore now to them, even this day, no delay. I mean, you get, sometimes people agree to something on one day, but when it involves money, the next day they wake up in a different kind of mood. So he looks at them and he says, uh, let's restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, all the interest that you charge them, and the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. And so they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I'm sure you're kind of shamefaced, caught in this sin, like any of us would be. And then he uh, 
uh, Nehemiah called the priests. And then it's interesting, he required an oath from these leaders, uh, uh, um, nobles and, and kind of power brokers and all, required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. So he says, all right, I've got your word, but I want something stronger than your word. I want to bring the priests in and I want you to make a covenant between you and God. Not, I don't. Not an agreement just between you and me. Covenant between you and God that you're going to do what's right here. And then I shook out the fold of my garment and, uh, and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. And even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And so this was what he prayed for God to judge whoever did not keep their oath here. And so the shaking out means to lose everything that they owned and valued. It's kind of the equivalent of us emptying our pockets. So it symbolized the loss of, of everything. May you lose everything you own and by the hand of God if you don't keep this promise. And so then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house, his property and uh, from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus, may he be shaken out and emptied. And all of the assembly said, amen, which means that's the truth or so be it. And then they praised the Lord. Uh, Then the people did according to this Promise, And so here the situation gets resolved. Very tough medicine to deal with this thing. It's just like a boil. He comes in there, sword of the spirit. He lances that thing. And now these people stay on track because he went back to the word of God and says, all right, how does the word of God apply to this situation? And that's what we're going to demand of you in this, no matter who you are, what you are, who you aren't and what you aren't. And that's what he did. Now, Nehemiah then goes on to explain that, that uh, how he conducted himself as a governor in the land of Judah. He went over there to build the walls. He'd been sent by Artaxerxes to do that, King Artaxerxes. So he goes over to do that. They're eager for his return. He might have made a short return back and come back to Judah. We don't know. But he became a governor over Judah for a period of 12 years. And when you were a governor over any part of the Persian Empire, it's just like a government job today. There are certain um, uh, expense accounts that are associated with that. So if you were a governor of uh, Judah, then you would have had a certain amount that would have been paid to you from the taxes of the people for you to feed yourself and and whatever else you might need in terms of transportation, no cars or anything like that. But Fred Flintstone had one, so but I don't know what they were, probably a donkey or something. So we look at here in verse 14, we say, why in the world is, is all this? This, because Nehemiah in his private life, was obedient to God in this area that he was going to have to rebuke other people. That's what allowed him to be so bold in handling the situation. When you and I enter into compromise in our walk with the Lord, one of the first casualties of that compromise is we will not confront that same sin in others. We begin to accommodate it. And then pretty soon it, it enlarges itself, it enlarges itself, it enlarges itself like leaven. 
until it becomes something that characterizes the body of Christ. We go silent on those things that don't mark our lives. And we can just wail the tar out of whatever we're doing right. There's a danger in a public ministry for a leader. For instance, in like the position that I have as a pastor, as a teacher. If I, if I go sideways and I start to compromise in my life, and then I start to hit those passages in the Bible, if my conscience isn't already seared, those things come so close to where my own life is that they either force us in our service to the Lord to repent, be a first partaker of that passage before I'd ever teach it and repent of it. And the worst thing that can happen is that I refuse to repent of that. And then I do a song and dance around that passage, ignore it, move on to the next passage, or just lightly address that and move on related to the body. And then slowly but surely what happens in that body is that that sin takes hold and begins now to be nurtured and developed within that body. And so the importance of not having hypocrisy in our lives or, or known sin, the, the ramifications are very, very significant. And he's essentially here. He dealt with it seriously because he had the authority to do it from a holy life as well as the word of God. And moreover, from that time, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes. Twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's portions. Again, they were allowed a certain amount from the taxes to feed themselves, but he refused to do it. He said, the former governors who were before me, they laid burdens on the people, and they took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver, which was evidently the tax for this. And yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. So he could not sit down to a sumptuous meal, realizing that many of the brethren were going home to handfuls of grain. So he said, all right, I'm not going to eat on the basis of, of, of being supported, on the basis of that kind of knowledge. And, and so he became self-supporting, and God provided for him, obviously, in some other way, uh, in order that the tax burden, at least for the provision of him, would be lifted to some degree for the people. And indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. And what he's saying there is, listen, when you're the grand poobah of some place, you can become a land speculator and then retire owning all kinds of land. You can use your position to enrich yourself. And so he was saying that he refused to do that kind of thing, the very thing that the rulers uh, were doing in the forms of, of land and people and all of that. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers. And that's who ate at his table every day. Wow. Did they have one of those, like, bell to bring them all in? All right. What's on the menu? Spaghetti. That's what I'd feed 150 people. I'd, I'd call a fast. So there were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us visiting from the nations around us. Now, that which was prepared daily, okay, those of us, those of us here who, who cook the meal for the family every day, that was prepared daily was one ox. 
six choice sheep, fowl was prepared for me, and every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. And yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. And then he said, Lord, remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. So I don't want any reward or anything this side of heaven. I don't want an acknowledgement from the people. God, as long as you uh, recognize it and you acknowledge it, this was his way of saying, this is what I'm doing, God. And so would you continue to provide for my needs uh, in the middle of, of all of this? And so we end chapter five here and this uh, division among God's people due to selfishness and greed uh, came as close to wrecking God's plan for the building of that wall is anything, in fact, more close to wrecking that plan than anything that the enemies of of Israel had uh, come up with. And again, it's very good for us to think about that in our own hearts tonight in the body of Christ, the vision within our lives, conflict within our lives, taking advantage of one another, one after another, after another, whatever the scenario might be in terms of uh, dating or business deals or whatever it might be. And then pretty soon, uh, one, two, five, ten people can divide an entire body. And so good for us to think about that tonight, to realize that that can stop an entire work of God. If, if we don't, if, if, if I'm going to be driven by covetousness, power, I'm going to turn this into every, and I'm going to turn this whole scene right here that's supposed to be the exact opposite of the world, make it run just like the world. And if I turned it into that, that kind of a situation and there's no repentance, then it, it's going to become a mess. So the importance of resolving our conflicts with one another loving one another, taking care of one another. Now, with this internal conflict taken care of and uh, being resolved, uh, their human enemies attacked them uh, once again, chapter 6. Now, it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, when they heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, although at the time I hadn't hung the doors, uh, in the gates, the openings to the wall, that Sanballat and Geshem, they sent to me saying, come, let us meet together uh, among the villages in the plain of Ono. Don't ever go to a place that's called Ono. There's got to be some of all the villages that you could have choose, chosen in the entire area had to choose Ono. So <clears throat> they We're told that they're in a panic here over what what is going on here, the progress that's going on. And there's not much time now to to stop the project. Excuse me a moment. So they recognize it's it's now or never. And they have been trying to attack the people as a whole to bring the work to an end, and uh, but that's been unsuccessful. So now they try to change their tactic to try and attack Nehemiah personally and individually to take the leader of the work uh, out. And it's a it's a it's an interesting tactic related to the devil. Anyone in the body of Christ who is everyone, no matter what our position in the body of Christ is, we are under you know, shepherds or under whatever title you want to give. We're all under Christ in terms of authority. 
But anybody that's over something under Christ, and they're kind of the ultimate uh, spiritual authority that God has given in that situation, and they do not realize that the enemy will move from an attack on the people and move to an individual attack to try and take the leader out, if, if, he, if he can possibly do that, then we're just being dumb uh, or naive or we're inexperienced and we're going to find out very, very soon that, that he likes to target leaders and to take them out. I've mentioned it before, but I think it's important. It helps me anyway. It was interesting that in World War One, that when uh, World War One was being fought and so much of it fought there in France and England sent so many of their soldiers to to fight there and the war bogged down and it was just basically a slaughterhouse in in France one they'd send one wave and then the others would send another wave and they just got cut down in this uh, uh, no man's land and the British had a, a, a policy at that time that everyone in the military was uh, equal and and certain and so they would take their leaders, they felt the best thing to do was to take their leaders, put them out in front, and have them lead the men out into these volleys of, of deadly fire. And what happened is, is that all of their leaders were virtually slaughtered in World War I. And then when World War II came, on the heels almost of World, uh, World War I, they looked around for leaders and they had... Uh, very few skilled leaders to put into the theater of war, comparatively speaking, to what they once had. And it makes us realize that leaders are not a dime a dozen in any environment. That's why we are engaged in a policy, Israel is engaged in a policy against terrorism around the world to take out the leaders, we think. And so you read the newspapers and they'll say, listen, there's a hundred more that will come behind this leader and take their place. We're just infuriating them. I'm not questioning whether the policy is right or whether it's wrong. I have my own opinions. But leaders are not a dime a dozen. You do ultimately kill a critical mass of them, and then now a movement has problems with a lack of good leadership or quality leadership for however good or however bad the ends are. So the devil understands that, and so he knows how to go after these leaders, cut off the head, they figured, and then the work will come to an end. Now, Ono was located 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and uh, for Nehemiah, that would have been well over a day's journey to travel there. So at the, at the very least, he was going to lose considerable amount of time if he agreed to this meeting uh, to uh, get over there, to come back. It would have stalled uh, the work. The other problem with the, the village of Ono is that it was in very dangerous, it, it was hostile territory toward the Jews. In other words, if they were serious about coming to a peace plan, and basically they're giving the, um, the impression that, hey, listen, <laughs> Nehemiah, what were we thinking? I mean, we were so crazy the way that we talked to you and we treated you, and I think you've badly misunderstood us at this point. We're really con there's a lot we have in common. Why don't we start this relationship all over again? You know? <laughs> and uh, I think you'll see us in a different light. So this is what they're trying to, to do with Nehemiah here. Let's, let's start things all over again. But they were sincere about it. They had come to Jerusalem, which was 
a stronghold for the Jews, a safe point, place for the Jews to have this conversation. But no, they're trying to lure him out into a dangerous place. And we're told as much there in verse two, but I had to say it also. Uh, but they thought to do me harm. So this is essentially an assassination attempt. They want to kill him and take him out. And so he sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it to go down to you? Talk about a dollar waiting on a dime. I'm going to let God has called me to do this work. You're an avowed enemy to bring it to an end. And I'm going to stop the work that I know God has called me to do to go down and meet with you. And I like this line here. I am doing a great work. You need to believe that about God's calling upon your life and the ministry that he's called you to do, whether it's in the raising of those children or in excelling in a classroom in school or whether it's holding down a job or and then beyond these different things that we have, if God calls us to do something in the body of Christ, but in all those places where we're looking to advance the body, uh, the kingdom of God by doing what we're doing in those realms and then Christian ministry that he calls us to on on top of that, it's important to look at that work and say, I am doing a great work and to view it that way. He's not boasting. All work done for God is a great work. All work that God calls us to do is a great work. You say it looks insignificant. They're not going to write a book about me. I'll have to write my own autobiography and give them away to 12 people who will want them. So they, I'm just living my life here in this land of insignificance in terms of what God has called me to do. All work that is done for God is a great work. And I need to view it that way. Because if I do not view what he has called me to do is a great work, then I am going to succumb to this particular distraction or this particular device that they're using against Nehemiah. And that's an attempt to distract him. Idle hands and idle minds are still the devil's workshop. And when God calls us to do something and we start it and we stop it, most often we start it and we stop it because we do not believe it to be the great work that God views it to be. And it's a healthy thing to keep us all in the saddle in terms of what we're doing. That's a little Western lingo for my wife. But it keeps us being faithful in our service to the Lord, whatever it is, to realize this is a great work. And in staying faithful to what God has called us to do, it keeps us out of all kinds of trouble. Because the time that God, if God has called me to do something and he, has, and he has called me to invest a certain amount of time in doing that, if I cease to do that, now I have more time on my hands than God intended me to have on my hands, which is not a good thing for me. And it's not a good thing for most of you. We're going to get into trouble with that. And it's, he wants to keep us busy as well as advancing the kingdom of God. And, and so here is this attempt now to uh, distract him from his service to the Lord. And, uh, and, and Nehemiah responds in this way. And I'll tell you, the devil uses distraction very, very effectively to move God's people away 
from God's calling and place of fruitfulness. Sometimes it can be new hobbies, new relationships, it can be entertainment, it can be politics, cultural concerns or social concerns. Sometimes I'll get all worked up about something that's happening in this world, all of which is going to burn someday and melt with a fervent heat. The Lord will speak to my heart in the words of Jesus. Let the dead bury the dead. Let the dead bury their own dead. man came up to Jesus in his public ministry, said to him, Listen, I'll, I'll follow you wherever you want to go, but let me stay at home until... My father dies and I can bury him. Let me show that. Let me do that related to my family. And Jesus spoke to him and said to him, let the dead bury the dead. In other words, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Let the spiritually dead do what the spiritually dead can do. As Christians, we need to focus our lives on the things that only Christians can accomplish in this world. And if we look at our lives and we say, my whole life as a Christian is being spent in the same way that someone that does not know the Lord is spending their life, then there's something wrong with that picture. We need to keep our focus, and this is why it relates to Christian ministry, keep our focus on Christian ministry, whatever God has called us to do. Because if we all get sucked into going back and taking care of all of the things that God can take and use unsaved people to take care of, who's going to take care of the things that only Christians can do in the world? Like share the gospel. Like represent God in the world. Like build up the body of Christ. And so the importance of of all of this staying focused in our Christian lives and in our ministries on what a Christian alone can do in the world and, and not be distracted from that. And so he sent messengers to them with that message. But they sent uh, they sent me this message four times and I answered them the same way. So four times they tried this method of distraction. Against them. Ready to be distracted yet? (laughs) The devil doesn't give up. No, I'm doing a great work. Two months later, he comes with the same thing. Well, now what do you think you're doing? Why don't we meet in the plane of oh no? And he sees if the distraction will work. But Nehemiah, he refuses all four times. Because if no was the right answer the first time, it's the right answer the fourth time. And so he holds to the answer. God has called me to do this. This is a great work. That hasn't changed. So my answer hasn't changed. And then Sanballat changes to a new device, the device of false accusation and slander. Sanballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time. This time with an open letter in his hand. That's important to notice that it's an open letter. They didn't come to Nehemiah with this letter that we're going to read in just a moment. Say, Nehemiah, let's hold on a second. Anybody got a letter opener? Here, private letter from your enemies. This was an open letter. So this was a letter that was 
not only being delivered to Nehemiah, but it was being distributed among God's people there in Jerusalem. And this accusation that they're bringing against, they're going to bring against Nehemiah here is one that they were taking this rumor, taking the slander, and they were spreading it among God's people to see who would believe it about Nehemiah. So they said, listen, you know, we're trying to look out for your reputation and all, but we're hearing stuff about you that's, that's going to mess you up, and I think you ought to talk with us about it. Here's what's going on. It's reported among the nations. And even Geshem says, dirty, filthy liar. But Geshem, an enemy, who cares what an enemy says? It's reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews, you plan to rebel against Persia. And therefore, according to these rumors, is Nehemiah going to respond now to all these rumors that are floating about him? You are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. That's what this whole thing is about. This isn't you coming from Artaxerxes and building a wall for the good of the people and God and all this stuff that you're making it out to be. You're building a wall so you can set yourself up as the king. Nothing could have been further from the truth. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. You're setting up this whole thing to then declare yourself as king. And now these matters will be reported to the king. We're going to let our King Artaxerxes know what we're hearing out here. And so uh, come, therefore, and let us consult together. In other words, the idea is that they would then take an uh, attempt to assassinate him or do him harm uh, as, uh, uh, if he would agree to that particular uh, meeting. And so they spread these lies about him. Uh, they manufacture the lies and then they spread uh, the lies. And lies are a constant reality for any leader involved in God's work. I don't say this to say, oh, poor Pastor Damien. Though I don't mind any emotions you have in that direction, you feel free to have them. But I say it just is a point of reference that if you're going to lead anything in the body of Christ, you're going to get lied about. That's just the way that it is. That's just the way that it is. I was on a on a, a, a bike ride a while back. It was a long ride. It was an organized ride. And I flatted out. So I'm on the side of the road and I'm fixing a flat tire and and I didn't know what was going on. We were, we were riding as a team that day and, I, and and we got split up and I was riding so fast. I lost the rest of the guys. They couldn't keep up. It was actually the other way around. But anyway, I, they, I took a wrong t- blah, blah, blah. So there I am and I'm fixing this thing. And while I'm working on it. I see a bunch of riders coming up the road. They're coming up kind of an incline. And, uh, and I hear my name being spoken of. Oh, yeah, I know Damien Kyle. And I thought, oh, no. You know him? That idiot? I, can't, I went to that church for two years. drove me crazy before I finally found another church. You know, see, you just get so used to all that that I looked up and I saw who was coming on the way. And I waved to them. Hi! Pastor Damien, so they could stop saying whatever they were about to say and then would regret when they saw me. You just learned to kind of head off trouble at the pass. So this is the kind of thing that happens. It's been reported according to rumors, all of this kind of thing. And again, as we've mentioned several times in recent months, both morning and evening, in the teaching, if the devil can peg us as the kind of person 
It has to run out and start every, put out every fire that the devil starts as it relates to our reputation. And that's what we will spend all our lives doing. He will light fires all the time. But again, the old saying, if we'll take care of our character, God will take care of our reputation. And he will. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not next week. But ultimately, he will take care of our reputation. And so Nehemiah here, he's not going to succumb uh, to this particular uh, device. And by the way, this charge that they're making against him, that is a very, very serious charge in those days. If the report went back to Artaxerxes and he believed that, this is death kind of stuff. This is treason, insurrection stuff. And then I said to him, saying, then I said to him, saying, no such thing as you are saying is being done. But you invent them in your own heart, for they are all trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. And now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. And so he denied the reports. He recognized the motivation behind this attack was to make uh, them afraid that the false accusations would be believed by others and that they would then stop the work the same way the temple was stopped under Zerubbabel for a lot of years as a result. And so he just prayed and he asked the Lord to uh, give him even greater strength to finish the work. It really does take faith to trust our reputations to the Lord when false reports are are circulating concerning us. The temptation to defend ourselves is very, very strong. But the time we spend defending ourselves is time that is not being spent on building the wall and fulfilling God's call upon our lives. And we can only lose so much time before it becomes a danger of hearing, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And afterwards, I came to the house of Shimeiah, uh, the son of Deleiah, the son of uh, uh, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple because they're coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. So here is the sixth device, the device of fear. They're trying to get Nehemiah to fear for his life and then model fear before God's people. They're going to come and they're going to kill you. Let's go into the temple and let's hide there. Now, how troubling would it be to you if Nehemiah succumbed to this and we had the picture in our mind, Nehemiah huddled in a corner in the temple out of fear that they're going to kill him? I mean, our hearts would absolutely sink. We'd shake our Bible and say, give us our old Nehemiah back. What's going on here? Give me this charlatan. And so they're trying to get him to do something under the influence of fear that would hurt his reputation before his people that he was leading and, and detrimentally affect the work as a result of that. Additionally, it was only priests were allowed to go into the temple. So Nehemiah recognizes that this isn't from God because it is an attempt to provoke fear in our in, in his life. God does not motivate us as his people. He does not use the motivation of carnal fear or greed. He doesn't do that. The whole world operates under those two motivations, fear and greed. God doesn't use those. 
And so whenever there is this thing, I'm gripped by fear. Somebody threatens me and, or something, and, I'm, and fear just takes hold of me. It's a good time to pull back. The Holy Spirit doesn't use that kind of fear to direct his people. He uses the peace and the leading of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. The other thing is, is that only a priest could go into the temple. So here is a man claiming to speak for God and represent God and have a concern for God's work. And yet he's calling Nehemiah to do something that contrary to the word of God and no true prophet of God is go- or spokesperson for God is going to call on us to do something disobedient to the word of God. And this was his response. And I said... Should such a man as I, and I want you to underline that. You don't have to, but I want you to. Should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And I love that phrase. Should such a man as I. There's only one other man in the entire Bible who responded in the same way to temptation with this very same response. And it was a very young man by the name of Joseph who was in the midst of an attempt by Potiphar's wife to seduce him. And here she makes herself available to him and he says, should such a man as I do this and sin against my master? And both of these men use that as a means of standing against very strong temptation. Different temptations, but very strong temptations. It is their identity is so lost in God. They so see their lives in the light of who they are in God, what God has called them to do. They're so lost in that identity that when someone tempts them to do something so contrary to that character and identity, Nehemiah didn't go, what will really sound good in the Bible if I say it right here? This explodes out of his life. This is nothing like who I am and what I am. I will not do it should such a man as I flee. Now you take your temptation whether it's tonight or tomorrow or the next day or next week or next year. And you just take and you can put that word flee in parentheses and you can put any temptation to sin in its place. And when that sin comes against us and calls on us to act in some way that is contrary to the word of God, to be able to stop and say, should such a man as I, and then you fill the blank in. And it feels good to say that. And it feels good to believe that about ourselves for God to have fashioned us into that kind of a place and maturity in the word of God. That I am in my thinking, in my purposes, so far removed from the world that this just explodes out of my life in the face of temptation. And you got to know the Word of God to have that built into your life. you got to walk close to God to have this kind of thing built into our lives. But it's there, and it's a great, great uh, wall in the face of temptation. Next time you, the next time you're tempted by whatever it is, 
You, you think, should, should such a man as I, and you fill that blank in, and see if you don't feel the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon your life. I will not go in, follows that kind of a realization and that kind of statement. And then I perceived that God had not sent him at all. But that he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. And for this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way in sin so that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me, that they might tarnish my reputation, that device to operate on the basis of fear. And it really is a powerful thing. None of us are beyond it. We're here we might be highly esteemed in our, in our family or in our workplace or in the area of Christian ministry. And all of a sudden we get hit with this thing and we succumb to fear and start to operate out of fear. And yes, none of us are perfect, but Jesus and, and there's grace for all of it if we, if we fumble in that way. But here is this beautiful portrait in the Bible here that shows us that it's important not to fumble in this area because it can affect our effectiveness and our reputation as a servant of the Lord. He said, my God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat. And so he just commends them to the Lord for the Lord to deal with according to their works and the prophetess. Uh, Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. This is known as an arrow prayer where you just, you know, spur the moment. You just uh, shoot up a prayer up into the heavens to the Lord. And so that's what he does. Here's what they did. He realizes what happens. He says, God, I just give this to you. You take care of it. And, uh, uh, and, and I'll leave it in your hands. And then you notice in verse four, uh, verse 15, so... And that's a good word to circle. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. 52 days? I thought it was three and a half years as I go through all of this. Pretty concentrated uh, resistance to the building of that wall and a great, great hard work that they did in, in the building that wall. So the wall was finished and... Uh, it, it, and, but that word so, as it relates to that, uh, is so important because it basically tells us, as it relates to Christian ministry, is that the walls that call, God calls us to finish, whatever they are, they do get finished. But this is how they get finished. There's always opposition. God doesn't call us to do anything. And it's like, wow, I wonder when the devil's going to show up. I'm just about done. That just means he's brought in all of the howitzers and all of the cannons and all the everything to try and wipe you out at the very end. And, and so here is, so the wall was finished. In other words, this is what it took, not only physically, but what it took spiritually to finish this work that God had uh, called them uh, to do. And it happened. And it, it, let me say one other thing about this, because verse 15 is actually kind of a crack up to me. And I mean, to finish this work in 52 days, even their enemies are going to recognize this was a miracle of God. I mean, they just did, could not believe that it happened. They realized we are up against God here. And it was a great discouragement to them. 
But they spend 52 days. They go through all of the backbreaking labor. They go through all of the spiritual warfare that it takes to build the wall. And then God encapsulates the whole thing in one terse little verse in the Bible. So the wall was finished on the 50, uh, 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And then he just dismisses us. It's over. Aren't we going to order pizzas or something? I mean, after this great accomplishment. And the reason that God, he doesn't dismiss it. But the reason why God doesn't bog down and head into a big thing here is because the building of the walls was not the big thing that he was doing at all. God can build walls. He can do what he's called you and me to do around this. He can do his work, all of his work without us. He includes us in the work in order for us to learn the spiritual lessons and to attain to the godly character that we attain to by being put into the middle of the work. The big thing was not the walls. The big thing was what these people turned into in the building of these walls, what they learned about God and all of that, and the relationship they ended up with God as a result of it. That's always what's behind the service, the big thing behind the service. And so it happened when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened. And it's nice to know here... The greatest revenge on our enemy, the devil, is to finish the work that God's called us to do. That's the single greatest way to poke them in the eye, is to finish the work. So they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. They recognized it as a miracle. And also, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. Tobiah is one of the bad guys mentioned earlier. He's opposing the work. He's on the wrong side. So it's like these nobles of Judah. They're working both sides of the situation. They don't know if Nehemiah is going to win. They don't know if uh, Sandalet or Tobiah or Geshem is going to win. So they're working both sides of the things politically. And, and so they, they were... Uh, uh, sent many letters to Tobiah, obviously informing him of Nehemiah's uh, work and his thoughts and what it was that he was uh, doing. And, and then uh, the letters of Tobiah came to them. And the reason for all of this was for many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of uh, Era. And his son, Jehohanan, had married the daughter uh, of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. And also they reported his good deeds to me. They were telling, always telling Nehemiah what a great guy Tobiah was. And then they reported uh, all of the words that he had said back kind of a spy to Tobiah. And Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. And obviously they delivered them. So they aligned themselves with Tobiah, who was uh, opposing the work. And they uh, aligned themselves with Tobiah because Tobiah had married into their families, contrary to the word of God. And so they elevated human relationship, family relationship above God, above God's people, above the work of God. And that's what they chose. And this whole time that Nehemiah is doing this whole thing, 
It's not till he find not till later that he finds out that there was a whole group of people that were working against him and they called themselves God's people. I'll say it again. I don't care. You take any man or woman in the body of Christ around this world who is obeying God's call upon their life and God is using them to make a significant difference in the world. Their greatest enemies are not the Tobiah, the Geshem, the Sanballat. You can spot them. You recognize who they are. You know them to an, as an enemy. The person that's the most dangerous is the person that calls themselves a Christian, but they have sold out their Christian convictions for money and for power. And what you're doing and God is doing through you is going to disrupt the flow of that money and that power. That's the dangerous group who sells out to the world for greed and for money and for power. And I hold to it. I believe in these last days, the greatest danger, the ones that will do the most lethal damage to those that are serving the Lord most powerfully in this world will not come from without. They will be stabbed in the back by people who call themselves Christians, who do not like what they see God doing and where that goes because it's going to affect their bottom line and they will oppose it, though it won't sometimes be exposed until long after. It's all a part of the game. It's all part of the deal. God watches it. He takes care of it. The wall still gets finished, but shame on anyone who finds themselves in the place that they would sell out the body of Christ and God's work in order to hold on to money or to hold on to power. So these are the devices. This is what we comes up against us as we do God's work and, and as, as we attempt that and as we finish it. The devices, mocking and ridicule, the threat of force, internal strife, Christian against Christian because of selfishness, distraction, false accusation and slander, and then fear in order to get us to harm our testimony. Very, very valuable passage in the Bible indeed. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for this revelation. We recognize that some of us recognize these devices very well in some measure. But, Lord, we love to read about these and to be on our guard and to have these devices brought out into the light that are brought against us. And we just pray not only for our own lives, but we pray for each person in this room and the body of Christ as a whole in this community and in this world, Lord. You just help us to recognize those devices, not to fall prey to them. And Lord, we will fall prey to them apart from your grace. And so we look forward to you just taking this word, the power and revelation of your Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can finish what you have called us to do in a successful, beautiful, God-glorifying, this is a God thing, miracle evident to everyone in the whole wide world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.